Hey, Adam, guess what time it is? It's time to crack the customer code. Welcome to episode 62 of Crack the Customer Code. I'm Jeannie Walters, and I'm here with my podcast partner in crime, Adam Toporek. I commit no crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I am innocent <laughs> until well, proven something. <laughs> uh, we are very excited to bring our interview with Shell Israel to you. We have a great conversation ahead. But first, Adam, I believe we have a sponsor. We do, and it is my book, Be Your Customer's Hero, Real-World Tips and Techniques for the Service Front Lines, which is getting great feedback from the field with comments like, quote, perhaps the best customer service book I've ever read, destined to become a recommended training resource, and exactly what I plan on providing to my team. I love that real-world feedback, Jeannie. <laughs> so Be Your Customer's Hero is enables you to find out more about how you can be a hero to your customer and how you can help your organization deliver great customer experiences. Go to BeYourCustomersHero.com. That's BeYourCustomersHero.com for more. And if you'd like to reach our listeners by being a show sponsor, you sure can. Go to CrackTheCustomerCode.com slash sponsor for full details. So, Adam, our guest today, I think, is probably one of the most experienced and learned gentlemen we've ever had the privilege to interview. Uh, Shell has written several books and he's really just studied how we communicate with each other. He ran a PR firm um, and now he really is just really examining how not only we work together and interact, but how we communicate and how that affects how we work and how it all goes together. It's pretty cool. Well, you know, I, lo I love that sort of cross-disciplinary viewpoint. You, know, you always make fun of me for bringing in my macroeconomics <laughs> once in a while. But, you know, because I really, truly appreciate how larger trends and larger, mm -hmm. you know, things that are happening affect what's going on on a smaller level. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, Shell really sort of weaves some of those themes together very well. He does. And... The interview covers a lot of ground, but I, I implore our listeners to stick with it because we do cover a lot of ground, but it's it's great stuff. It's pretty fascinating. So why don't we introduce Shell? Sounds good. Shell Israel is a best-selling author who writes and speaks about technology's impact on business and life. He has been a keynote speaker on all continents not covered by ice. I love that. Israel has previously contributed to numerous publications, including Forbes, Fast Company, Business Week, and Business Insider. Israel began his long career as a newspaper reporter in the 1960s. Hating the associated vow of poverty, he spent 20 <laughs> years as a Silicon Valley PR executive. In 2001, he sold SIPR, the agency he started and ran, to his employees. And then he became a recovering publicist. <laughs> he now writes and speaks full-time, so let's go ahead and speak with Shell. So, Shell, we are so happy to have you here today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Just I'm very happy to be here today. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to finding out more about your book. And let's start with the title. Tell us, what is lethal generosity and how did you come up with that term? Well, that's I'll answer that in reverse order. Lethal generosity is the concept that for a company to be very, very generous to their customers, giving them the best experience they possibly can have, it simply preempts uh, a competitor's efforts to hijack the customer. Uh, they may get a sale 
but they won't have the relationship. They won't have the loyalty. They won't have customer championing them the way you will if you give them that superior experience. Uh, the idea comes from a bunch of stories I collected over the years. Uh, the first actually comes from a guy named Robert Scoble, who every now and then I write books with and do other things with. Um, when Robert was in college, he had a job in a camera store in San Jose, California, and he learned a little trick, um, which um, his boss knew he was doing, but he always acted with customers like he was sneaking the information. Somebody would come in and they'd ask for a particular model of a camera, and Robert would say, you know, we have it. But around the corner, the other guy is selling that camera on sale this week. Why don't you go over there and get it there? <laughs> and the other the customer would look astounded and walk out of the store. And sure enough, within a week or two or a day or two, the same customer would come back and say, you know, that was really, really nice of you. I saved 25 bucks. And with that 25 bucks, the customer would uh, buy a camera case or a tripod or that old-fashioned stuff called film. <laughs> and... That got Robert the idea of uh, lose a sale, gain a customer, and the understanding that if you treat your customer right, you may lose a particular transaction, but over time you will have customers who are loyal to you, who will champion you to their friends, um, who will just keep coming back over and over again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit more about the power shift that you describe in the book. So how are organizations <clears throat> losing power in the marketplace and how can they adapt to not just survive, but really thrive and succeed? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it's a one time I wanted to name the book power shift till somebody very politely mentioned that Alvin Toffler had a name of a <laughs> That sold three and a half million, which is probably a little better than I'm going to do. By about <laughs> oh, not after this podcast. No, you're oh, going oh, to get oh. a bump. <laughs> <laughs> In that case, I'll, oh, I won't go there. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> about describing yeah. that power shift. Yeah. Um, just a little background. Uh, this is my sixth book and five of them, along with my articles in Forbes and Business Week are always about technology's impact on business and life. And the last book uh, we talked about, uh, we being Scoble and I, talked about five forces of technology converging together to create a superstorm of change. Well, the result of that superstorm of change is that this technology has allowed customers to influence each other far more than companies uh, can, than brands can influence them through advertising and traditional marketing. Um, this means that you can keep spending a lot of money on marketing and advertising, and it isn't going to end tomorrow by any means. Excuse me, I get all choked up when I think of power shifts. <laughs> so what the power shift means is you're last customer is going to influence your next customer a lot more than previously was possible. They're going to do this through social media, through mobile uh, technologies, through Instagram. 
Um, and this changes how brands should think about where they invest energy and money. Um, you can keep doing what you've always done. I love digital marketers talking about how successful they are, but they're always doing it in comparison with the same uh, techniques in the old broadcast days of newspaper ads and TV spots. Mm-hmm. But what they're not noticing is that there is an inevitable tapering going on in, in the results they're getting. And that what is happening is that the technology has put the customer in the rightful place, which is at the heart of the successful organization, rather than at the ed- edge of the organization where they have a target marked on them. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned um, your previous book without mentioning the name, so I will. It's called Age of Contacts. I actually wrote a review of that book, so we're going to throw that in the show notes because it really is a, a good book, and it talks about that power shift you've just recognized. And, you know, Shel, we've had a lot of authors on the podcast, but I think you are, you are breaking new ground here. This is the first time we've actually asked an author about their dedication. So in Lethal Generosity, you dedicated the book to, quote, the millennials. They're the best hope we've got, end quote. So tell us your thoughts on the millennials and how you think they will impact all of our futures. Well, they're going to impact the future of the world because they're a majority already and they will remain a majority for the next 50 years. Um, this is basically not a lot of technology, but biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more of them and they're having fewer babies in earlier generations. So the way they think and the way they do things is very, very different. Uh, the book notes that they are the first... A generation of digital natives to come of age, and as we all know, uh, we're coming of age, the coming of age into a planet that has many, many very large problems. Um, our my generation, I'm a boomer. Um, we thought we were going to solve all these problems, and we kind of made a mess of stuff like world peace and climate and the environment and so on. We did a few good things. We created the personal computer, uh, the Internet, social media. So basically, we, our legacy are these tools rather than this world. Meanwhile, the millennials come of age into a world that is filled with problems, and they look at the way we solved them and say, well, you, you tried to do everything. You were too idealistic. They're going to use these tools they have, these mobile devices that are ubiquitous in their lives, and they're going to work with each other to solve problems one chunk at a time. And they're going to use the power of network and each other to let these solutions, one group can address clean water, another can address climate change, another can address um uh, shoes for uh, barefoot poor kids until they have a shot of changing it. I don't think the world's going to end tomorrow, but I do think we're on a very dangerous trajectory. And I think that this generation is either going to solve it or prolong uh, the future of this planet in a good way, or it probably will be too late. It's interesting you bring up that sort of demographic shift because you know we look at it from the perspective of business, 
But when you look at it globally, I, I saw a very interesting thing about the inverted pyramid, which is sort of an extrapolation of what's happened with Social Security and these types of things, which is since the birth rate is so low and the population is so big as the millennials sort of progress through the the life their life cycle, there's going to not be enough support underneath them to support them as they get older. So they really are going to have to address a lot of these issues if they want to thrive and succeed in later life. Yeah, or it will be too late. Hmm. Um, they, you know, my generation had was the first generation to realize when we hit age 65, there wasn't going to be enough money in that government paycheck to pay, never mind rent, pay for the medication some of us have to pay for. And this is a trend that's going to continue. Um, millennials don't trust institutions to solve problems. They think every institution has their own agenda and therefore they're locked into doing what they've done. So if they can't solve the problems and the problems are still there, then it's up to the millennials to address them. Well, and this year, 2015, is the first year that millennials officially took yep. over the workplace as yep. there are more of them in the workplace than any other generation. So it's, yeah. I think we're just at the cusp of what we're really going to see. So it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating topic. And, you know, I was also really interested in the concept you have in the book, um, and you'll have to help me with the pronunciation here, cure it. Kiratisis? <laughs> How do you Kiretsu, say it? Kiretsu. Kiretsu. Uh, go to Wikipedia. I'm using their pronunciation. <laughs> I stumble over the word and everybody else does. But <laughs> um, It's an interesting concept because it comes out of the end of World War II when Japanese companies started trying to get back into the economic marketplace. And they did extremely well in a very short period of time by networking with each other. They did it very quietly and privately, but Sony would buy cars from Toyota, and I'm not sure that's exactly the lines of that Kiritsu, but they shared knowledge, they shared resources, they selected what PR firms and advertising firms they would use, and they uh, they gathered great power by the forms of networking we had before we had the technology kinds. In the 90s, when the Japanese kiritsus started to recede, uh, American venture capitalists used the same strategy, uh, particularly Kleiner Perkins, uh, Caulfield and Byers, who at that time became the first billion dollar uh, uh, venture fund and launched so many top-notch companies that, that I think they still have some kind of track record for home financial home runs. Now we find companies like Tom's, which was the first company that realized the power of cause marketing. I'll go back to that in a second. Uh, are starting to work together with each other to build Kiritsu's except now they're even more powerful because they have the power of social networks, of computer networks, of the Internet. Um, Tom's, uh, you may know of, um, but a guy named Blake Mikowski never did very much except make some money for himself and have a lot of fun. Um, 
found himself in a village in South America where he was very much touched by children walking around barefoot, which sounded quaint till he started realizing those feet were blistered and bleeding and that he was told, and that was a key moment in his life, that being barefoot is a barrier to walking out of poverty. Mm-hmm. So he started Tom's, and Tom's makes inexpensive and pretty attractive shoes. They began just for women, now they're for everybody. And the deal was this. You go buy a pair of these shoes, and Tom's, the company, will give one pair of these shoes to an impoverished child. Well, 10 years or more have passed by now, mm-hmm. and they've given away 45 million pairs of shoes. They now have similar products, similar programs with other products. And other companies have come along, and they've started using the same cause marketing uh, strategy. Uh, Warby Parker is doing it online for glasses. Soma is doing it for water carafes that have biodegradable filters. And this changes a great deal. Um, Other companies have always given charity. It's been sort of a nice sidebar, and then they would capitalize on it by using advertising. But these companies are building cultures around a cause. They're hiring people not to fit into org charts, but to fit into the culture that is dedicated to the cause. Mm -hmm. What does this mean to the customers? It means a great deal because the customer is now not the target, but the marketing channel. Uh, My wife buys Toms, and when somebody says, nice shoes, she doesn't say, thank you, it goes so nicely with my taffeta dress. I don't know if she has a taffeta dress. (laughs) Careful there. Yeah, i got to be careful on that before I position my wife wrongly, and that would be a big (laughs) Uh, But... My wife will immediately tell the story about how these shoes helped an impoverished kid. Uh, at Warby Parker, somebody says, cool glasses, dude, because they're very millennial in the styles they, and they're, they're putting out. Um, the person can say that somebody in India got a pair of glasses just like these because I bought these. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Soma Water. They give money to charity water. Yuba gives money to impoverished children so that they have warm lunches. And on it goes. And it turns out that all these companies work with each other. They sit on each other's boards. They use the same third-party vendors. They go to the same conference called Summit, which is up on Powder Mountain in mm-hmm. Utah. Here, it's located just east of Eden, which is a particular artist touch that I kind of like. And they're the buying up marine wetlands to, uh, to preserve it. They're doing all kinds of good for the world, and in so doing, they're becoming very popular. They're reducing their marketing costs because their customers are championing them, and they're becoming what every business wants to become: very financially prosperous. Well, and I. It's funny you mention how they're all working together now because several years ago at South by Southwest, I saw uh, Blake speak about Tom's in the early days and how the challenges that they encountered, they really didn't have any mentors. They didn't have anybody who could help them figure out, okay, now that we've made this commitment, how do we actually get the shoes over there without it costing more than you know, we, we made in two years. (laughs) And so they really had some obstacles to overcome and the creativity and the, 
I mean, he was so passionate. I mean, you could not watch him speak and not feel like you were part of the cause and you were dedicated to it. And so I love that now that's being brought out to all these other ones and uh, so much good is being done because they're working together. So that's a really cool example. Yeah. Um, He, I think, is going to be remembered for a very, very long time because I think he's going to change the business model for future brands. Mm-hmm. particularly as we go into, oh, I, I keep declaring things the age of, but it is going to be the age of the millennial. Um, going back to them just for a second, I want you to say that when I write about them, I'm not talking about them just as customers. I'm talking about them also as employees. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to change your company. You're going to have to change the criteria for how you treat your employees your organization is going to get flatter. You're going to use online communications in ways that you haven't dreamed of using. And then you're going to have to consider the fact that millennials are very likely going to be forming companies to compete with you no matter what it is you do. Well, yeah, you know, we've spoken on a number of podcasts. It's interesting how much the topic comes up because they truly are changing things across the board, you know, globally, uh, biologically, as you said, you know, sort of uh, demographically and how we both deliver customer experience and work on our internal customer. So we really appreciate all the insights. This has been a sort of very broad, I like this, we've had a lot of different points, which yeah. I really like. You're, very, you're a very learned man, Shell. So we've talked about, uh, hold on, we learned our word of the day, Keretsus. Okay, we've talked about uh, demographic uh, implosion. Oh, by the way, fun fact for the day before we close out the podcast. uh, I just heard that adult diapers currently outsell uh, baby diapers in Japan. (laughs) Just let that sink in. (laughs) Another demographic shift. (laughs) Absolutely. But thanks so much, Hel. This has been great, and we look forward to uh, speaking with you again. But tell us, where can people find you on the Internet? I'm glad you weren't going to say, tell us whether I use adult (laughs) I was very worried about that. (laughs) Shellisrael.com. That's A before E in the last name, one L. Um, And from there, that'll take you anywhere you want to go. Or you can just go to Amazon and look at Lethal Generosity. Perfect. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Shell. It was great. Thanks, Shell. Thank you. All right. Well, that was our interview with Shell Israel. We hope you enjoyed this episode, number 62 of Crack the Customer Code. You can see show notes for this and all of our episodes at crackthecustomercode.com. And don't forget, Jeannie needs reinforcement. Give us feedback. (laughs) Come on. Just like the millennials, I need to hear it all the time. (laughs) I'm Jeannie Walters. Sign up for customer experience webinars at cxwebinar.com and learn more about our executive workshops and keynote speaking at 360connects.com. And I'm Adam Tapore. You can connect with me and find out more about our customer service workshops and training at customersthatstick.com. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.